Acts chapter number 8. If you've been here the last couple of weeks and you know that, that we started uh, Acts chapter 8. And, and we learned that it's Acts chapter 8 that is a huge transitioning point in our study of Acts. Because Acts chapter 8 is when the gospel goes out of Jerusalem and, and begins to go global. Um, it's been preached and even received up to this point by thousands of people in Jerusalem who have converted from Judaism uh, into Christianity. They've been saved, they've been baptized, they are following the apostles' teaching, but then persecution comes on the church and they're forced to leave their homes and their, and their jobs and their families and they scatter everywhere and thankfully these Christians take the gospel with them. One of the members of the Jerusalem church that was forced to scatter was a man by the name of Philip. We studied him uh, last week. He went to a place called Samaria where, where he preached the gospel. And, and ch- uh, chapter 8 verses 4 through 8 talk about how many people were saved and baptized. This would have been an example of what we call today mass evangelism. This, this is what the apostles did in Jerusalem back in Acts chapter 2 and 3. They preached the gospel to humongous crowds and thousands of people got saved. Mass evangelism is, has been used effectively by the Lord uh, through the years by, by good men like, like Wesley and Whitfield and Moody and Billy Sunday and Billy Graham and, and, and many others who were gifted With the opportunity to speak to humongous crowds and many people have been saved through through these men's evangelistic preaching. But here's the truth today. Mass evangelism like that isn't the only way the gospel spreads. If that was the case, only those who were good at public speaking or those who had a platform of influence from which they could speak would be the ones who could evangelize. But we know that the Great Commission was given to every Christian. Not just Christians who are gifted public speakers. This is where our text comes into play today. It teaches us that the gospel isn't just spread through preaching to crowds, though it is. But it also advances, maybe even more, through personal encounters. In the first half of Acts 8, we see an example of mass evangelism. Now in the second half of Acts 8, we see an example of personal evangelism. Something that every single Christian is called to do. Not every Christian can stand up and talk to a big crowd or even maybe a crowd like I'm preaching to today. But every Christian can have a personal conversation with one person. Acts 8 teaches us how to do that. Let's read our text. Verse 26 through verse 40. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise. And go toward the south under the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, an eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said unto Philip, go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, how can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that you'd come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture, which he read was this. We're going to talk about it later. It's Isaiah 53. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb dumb before his shearer. So opened he not his mouth. 
In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is a son of God. And all God's people said to that. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. You know why? Because saved people get baptized. Verse 39. And when they were come up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more. And, went, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at, at Azotus and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. The title of my message is simply this, Personal Evangelism 101. Now I thought about getting fancy when I heard the titles of some older preachers who preached this text. One, one preacher said that he titled his sermon, Soul Winning in a Stagecoach. <laughs> or, or one preacher said, Witnessing in a Wagon. Mine is Personal Evangelism 101. Four tips, four tips for effective personal evangelism. Number one, if you're going to be an effective witness, you first need to love people. Philip's the main character in our text. And what we know about Philip is that he was a man who loved people with a Christ-like love. This is what made him such a powerful witness. He, He wasn't an apostle like Peter, James, and John. He was an ordinary layman in the church whose life had been changed by the gospel and who had a genuine love given from him by the Spirit for those around him. One author says of Philip that he loved the least, he loved the last, and he loved the lost. Let me explain. He loved the least. If you go back to Acts 6, it shows how Philip loved and cared for the widows in the church of Jerusalem. This is a demographic in the church that if you know the scripture is really close to God's heart and they were close to Philip's heart as well. He not only loved the least, he loved the last. Here in Acts chapter 8, Philip is the first one to take the gospel to the Jews' enemies, the Samaritans. The Jews have been in hostility against the Samaritans for centuries up to this point. This is the last group you'd expect a Jewish man to go to, but Philip loved them enough to take the gospel to them. Here in our text today, Philip loved one lost man who was seeking for truth and And he made a 50-mile journey to get to this one lost man. He loved the least. He loved the last. And he loved the lost. It shows up a couple of times in our text. First, Philip was willing to leave his successful ministry to the Samaritan crowd to go and minister to the one. He could have said, man, not now. Holy Spirit, can you call somebody else to do that? Ministry is booming in Samaria. I am loving these huge gospel crusades. I am seeing people get saved by the droves. They are following you in baptism. Man, I'm not going to go down to Ethiopia for one person. I'll do that later. But no, instead, he left the multitudes to minister to the individual. He loved the person as much as he loved the crowd. That sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? You remember when Jesus went to preach in in Jericho and and people began to pack the sides of the streets to get a glimpse of him like it's the Macy's Thanksgiving Day prayed? Jesus could 
could have stopped there and preached to the multitude. And, and a lot of times he did. But in this case, he focuses on just one person in a tree. Zacchaeus. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is coming down from a mountain. And, and it says in the text that large crowds followed him. But then one leprous man shows up and Jesus' focus narrows down to just that one man. I could give you all kinds of Instances in the Gospels where this is the case. Jesus teaches us something so simple but profound that those who are effective at reaching the many are first effective at reaching the one. Philip loved the one. We should love the one. May I ask you, who is the one that God is putting in your path to love this week? Another aspect of Peter's love for people is that he was willing to go where the lost people were. As a Jewish man, he went where other Jewish men weren't willing to go, to Samaria. Then he went all the way down to where the Ethiopian eunuch was. Why? Because he loved lost people. That sounds like Jesus too, doesn't it? What was he criticized for by the Pharisees for doing so often? He got criticized for sitting and eating with lost people in their homes. The Pharisees didn't think that Jesus should be rubbing shoulders with the lost, but that's precisely what Jesus did. And that's why men like Peter got saved and Andrew got saved and James got saved and John got saved and Matthew got saved. Not because Jesus held a, a, a service in, 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 in the open for everybody to come to, but because Jesus went to where they were. If you really love lost people, you won't be allergic to them. You won't be scared of them. You won't be standoffish toward them. You won't just surround yourself with Christians all the time and stay in your sterile spiritual bubble where you're comfortable. No, if you love lost people, you'll find a way to include them in your life. You'll have them into your home. You'll ask them to sit by you at church. You'll interact with them at work. I'm not saying that you'll let lost people influence you. The Bible says that we shouldn't be conformed to the world. But at the same time, the Bible says that we ought to go into the world. That means that we're to be in the world, but not of the world. We're to be connected to, cons- to sinners without being conformed to sinners. So let me ask you, where are the sinners in your life? Where are they? Are you connected to them? Are you going to where they are so that you can bring them to where you are? This is where personal evangelism begins with loving people, loving the one and going to where sinners are. Notice secondly. If you want to be an effective personal evangelist, you need to yield to the Spirit. Philip was in the middle, right, of this fruitful season of mass evangelism. And the Spirit said to him, leave the crowds and go to the desert. And Philip was obedient, wasn't he? He walked about 50 miles into the wilderness. He walked onto a road that led through the desert from Jerusalem down into Egypt. This is a remote place. Kind of like if you're on a highway in western Kansas, you might... See a sign that says last gas station for 200 miles. That's Philip. The spirit told him to leave the crowd and go into the middle of nowhere to meet one man. Who was this man that the spirit told Philip to meet in the desert? Well, he's described as an Ethiopian man. That means he would have been a black man from far up the Nile River in what is called today Sudan. He was a eunuch, the text says. Because of this barbaric custom in some nations in that day, he would have been forced to undergo a procedure to ensure that he'd be trusted around the royal harems. 
He was a powerful man, the equivalent today of the kingdom's treasury secretary or minister of finance. And the Bible implies that he was a spiritual seeker because the text said that he came to Jerusalem to worship. So he was apparently interested in Judaism. He was interested in the God of Israel, but it was unlikely that he was a full convert to Judaism. Here's why. He was a Gentile. And then his status as as a eunuch meant that under the Old Testament law, he couldn't even enter into the temple to worship. So he watched from the outside. He was curious. He was seeking. But he still had a bunch of unanswered questions. The text said he had this scroll of the book of Isaiah and he read it when he was, while he was in his wagon, headed home. Think about this. Of all the things to be doing when Philip met him, he was reading scripture. And of all the places to be in scripture, he was in Isaiah 53. Every detail of the story has the Holy Spirit's fingerprints all over it. Think about it. Philip obeys the voice of God. And travels into the desert where he just happens to meet a man who just happens to be reading scripture from a passage that just happens to talk about Christ. And this man just happens to be seeking for answers that Philip just happens to have. I got news for you. It didn't just happen. Every part of this narrative was orchestrated by the sovereign hand of God and led by the spirit of God. This teaches us an important role that the Holy Spirit plays in our witnessing efforts. I put it in a statement. The Spirit of God prepares evangelistic opportunities for us, then guides us with boldness and wisdom to seize those opportunities. Let's break that down. The Spirit of God prepares evangelistic opportunities for us. That means that while you can't even see it, the Holy Spirit is making preparation for you to have a gospel conversation. He's already working circumstances out to bring you into contact with somebody who needs your spiritual influence this coming week. It might be somebody in your family. It might be somebody at the grocery store. It might be somebody who visits our church. Somebody who works on your vehicle. Somebody you serve with in the community. Another parent uh, who, who also sends their kids to play on the same team that your kids play on. The Spirit could be preparing them right now and preparing you For a one-on-one conversation about the Lord or about church. My my favorite modern story of this in in our church is is when my dad tells the story of the salvation of Marlon Meisenheimer. If you don't know this story, it's an amazing story. If you know this story, then you know it's an amazing story. It's really cool. I think my dad pioneered personal evangelism, in my opinion. He pioneered personal evangelism as we know it in Fellowship Baptist Church. My dad was so sensitive to the spirit as he was out in the community and the normal rhythms of life. He, 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 he kind of uh, went away from like the formal like knock on your door type evangelism and went toward just building relationships with people. And it's amazing how God has blessed that in our church. And what my dad did on this day, well, he did on a lot of days, he, he went to Marlon Meisenheimer's barbecue trailer. They're at the old homeland on Main Street. I think it's tractors and whatever it is now. I don't know what it is. It's where the hamburger place is. It's the only thing I use in that parking lot. Anyway, uh, my dad went to the, he went and got a barbecue beef sandwich all the time. 
there. And so he got to know uh, Dorothy and Marlon really well. And, and this particular afternoon, Marlon was just down. He, he, you could just tell in his, his emotion, as my dad says, that he's just, he was discouraged. And, and, and so uh, my dad said, what's going on? And Marlon said, I'm, I'm closing down. And you know, if you know Marlon, what he does, he puts everything into it. And you know how good his food was and the service was. And it was like, it was the place, man. It was awesome. And, and so my dad, just in that moment, felt like the Spirit of God had been preparing Marlon and him to have just some type of spiritual conversation. And, and the best thing my dad thought to do in that moment was put his arm around Marlon and say, can I just pray for you? So my dad put his arm around Marlon and they prayed right there in the parking lot in front of the red trailer. And I guarantee you Marlon was wearing a red shirt and a red hat. And, and, and after that, it's like just my dad didn't thump him over the head with the Bible. He didn't even share the gospel with him right there. He just prayed with him. But that just opened up a little crack in the door for, for my dad to have a spiritual influence in Marlon's life slowly and naturally and organically. And, and, and my dad just began to check up on him, like, how are you doing after it closed down? And, and then my dad, you know, invited him to church and he, he knew Rick and Tammy Potts really well. And they worked on them and had a connection with them. And I can't believe they came to church after hanging out with Rick Potts, but <laughs> God's, God's grace is real. And, and so they came and uh, heard the gospel preached multiple times. And, and after one particular message, Marlon went out, out of the line um, out in the foyer and saw my dad afterwards and said, hey, can, can we get together sometime this week? I'd like to talk to you about that message. I said, yeah, yeah, just call me this afternoon. We'll, we'll schedule a time. And, and, and Marlon called him but said, I can't wait. Can we meet right now? And so he came to the church and, and my dad led him to Christ, shared the gospel with him. And Marlon trusted Christ uh, as his personal savior on that day. And, and, and it's just history ever since. Their whole family's in church now. In fact, just a couple of months ago, his son-in-law, Art Rivera, did the same thing that he did. After a gospel message, Art walked through the foyer and Art said, can I talk with you sometime this week? And we got together and six weeks later, through a gospel study in the book of Mark, Art Rivera called upon Christ to save him. And Lord willing, will get baptized this next month. Isn't that great? All, all, it was just nor, it was just a normal, natural conversation where the Holy Spirit nudged my dad and said, I've been preparing you for, have this prayer with Marlon. Now have it. And my dad had it. And that opened the door for my dad to have a spiritual influence in his life. Look at the next part of that definition. The Spirit of God prepares evangelistic opportunities for us, then guides us. That, that means that the Spirit is going to lead us in the path of the person we're supposed to influence. Now, be clear, this doesn't mean that we have to wait for a mystical voice to say, that's them. Go share the gospel with them. We don't need the Spirit to tell us to share the gospel. Why? Because the Bible already tells us to share the gospel. Go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Right? It's like my son right now. If he doesn't brush his teeth, sometimes he says, well, it's because you didn't tell me to. What do you mean I didn't tell you? I've been telling you to for 12 years. It's just a given. It's automatic. Well, Christians... The Bible says, share the gospel. So if you're waiting to get all warm and fuzzy to share the gospel, you're waiting too long. Like, share the gospel. But the Spirit is so gracious in that the Spirit will guide us into specific opportunities. The Spirit will arrange divine appointments like He did for my dad. 
He'll open up certain doors for gospel conversations and then he'll move us into those places. That's why it's so important for all of us to be yielded to the Holy Spirit, to walk with the Holy Spirit. Because as you are, you'll have an alertness and and you'll have a sensitivity to how the Spirit is guiding you in your personal evangelism. Hear me, if you go to work tomorrow and you are not walking in the Spirit, there's chances, there's a chance that you'll spend an eight-hour day with someone who's a non-Christian and you won't even try to find an open door to speak the gospel to them. You won't even think about it. Chances are, if you go about your week this next week not being filled and yielded to the Spirit, that that you're going to miss an opportunity to invite your waitress to church. Or you're going to get your oil changed and and not even invite your mechanic to church. Or you're going to go golfing or hunting with a group of guys but never once mention your faith. Are you going to hang out with other moms in town, but never ask them how you can pray for them this week? The Spirit is constantly going to guide you into gospel conversations. You have to be yielded to that. Sensitive to those. Look at the end part of this definition. He's not just going to guide us. He's going to guide us with boldness and wisdom to seize the opportunities. You can't read the book of Acts. Without seeing how boldness and wisdom in our witness is tied directly to being filled with the Holy Spirit. As Peter and John and even Stephen are placed on trial to answer for their faith. It's said of each of them that they were filled with the Spirit. And as a result, they all received boldness and wisdom to answer their critics with the truth. That's why we need to be daily yielded to the Spirit. Because we'll not only be more sensitive to the gospel opportunities we're given, but we'll have boldness to enter into those conversations. And then we'll have wisdom for what to say once those conversations begin. So many people today are are just totally afraid to talk about God. Totally afraid to talk about the Bible. Totally afraid to talk about their church because it's become a taboo subject. People even say, don't talk to me about religion. As though it's illegal to do so. As a result, Christians like us everywhere have just stopped talking about the Lord in fear that will offend somebody. That's why we need boldness from above. Because we are not told to live in fear. We're told to go, we aren't told to go to work and never say anything about our faith. We're told from scripture clearly to stand in faith and speak in boldness about the gospel that's changed our lives. And yes, we need wisdom in an intolerant world for when to speak and how to speak and to whom we should speak. That's where the Holy Spirit will guide you with this wisdom. Friend, he'll never guide you to be antagonistic with the gospel. He'll never guide you to be arrogant with the gospel. He'll never guide you to be brash with the gospel or inconsiderate with the gospel. That's your flesh. But the Holy Spirit will guide you to be wise and bold with the gospel. Be yielded to the Holy Spirit and watch. Just watch how you're more sensitive to gospel opportunities. And you're even more bold and wise in having those. Personal evangelism 101. Love people and yield to the Spirit. But what happens once we get into the conversation? What does Philip do as he talks with the eunuch that can help us as we talk to sinners? Well, he teaches us that if we're going to have an effective gospel conversation, we need to be able to, number three, understand and explain the good news. 
When Philip came into contact with the eunuch, he found him reading from Isaiah 53. Look at verse 32 and 33 of our text. Look at your Bible. Chapter 8, verse 32 and 33. Here's what he's reading from Isaiah. The place of the scripture which you read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And like a, da- a, 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 a lamb dumb before a shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Now, we look at Isaiah 53, and there's a chance, God willing, that we're going to use Isaiah 53 as our scripture reading for our communion on Sunday night, February 26th. It's an amazing passage. And it makes a lot of sense to us today. We know that Isaiah 53 is prophesying the suffering of Christ. But the Ethiopian had an insightful question due to his context. In verse 34, he said, who is Isaiah talking about? Is Isaiah talking about himself? Like, who's the servant in Isaiah 53? Is is it Isaiah himself? Or is he talking about, like, like, the nation of Israel among the heathen Gentiles? See, Philip points out that, that... neither of these options were correct. You, you got to understand that, that the two common interpretations of this passage was, was either number one, Israel or Isaiah was using figurative language to speak of his own suffering and rejection as a prophet, or that he was using these verses to speak of the suffering of the nation of Israel among the Gentiles. So, so, so Philip is saying, no, 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 none, none of those are right. Isaiah didn't atone for anyone's sin. He was a sinner and neither did Israel. The servant this passage speaks of that suffered unjustly, who, who took God's punishment, who atoned for sin, who was killed, who was buried among the wealthy, yet was raised from the dead and by his work justified many. Philip said, this man is Jesus Christ. Notice what Philip did in verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth because the gospel is an announcement. And he began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Did you see what he did when he got in the conversation? He talked. If some of you are going to be witnesses, the first thing you've got to learn to do is talk. I'm not talking about stop being shy. Like you literally have to learn that you don't win people to Christ just by living a good life in front of them. You are missing out on evangelist opportunities if you won't announce with your mouth the good news when you're given opportunities. You've got to learn to rely on the Holy Spirit for boldness and wisdom to speak. And and then it says he began at the scripture that was originally questioned by the Ethiopian eunuch. That word began seems to imply that Philip didn't stop there. He probably used other Old Testament scriptures as well as supporting evidence. But, But notice that he eventually got to Jesus. He preached Christ. What's the point? You and I need to understand the scripture and the gospel enough to be able to explain it to others who have questions and then understand how to work the good news of Jesus Christ into our conversation. What does that mean? We need to be prepared spiritually, yielded to the spirit, but we also need to be prepared theologically to do the work of personal evangelism. The Ethiopian, watch here, he didn't need just a friend in his chariot who would show him liberal love. He needed more than that on this day. He needed an encounter with someone who could explain the truth of the gospel with the Spirit's help. To be faithful witnesses, we need the Spirit, but we also need a good grasp on the Word of God. Philip was not only prayed up, Philip was studied up. 
And notice, Philip didn't use some canned presentation that he learned at Bible college. He had a very natural conversation, not a forced one. Not every conversation is is going to be one in which you can use like this pre-planned strategy, A, B, and C. You have to be able to meet the person you're talking to right where they're at. That means you might have to answer some questions and doubts they have that don't seem to be connected to Jesus at first. But as you answer those questions, you can use the scripture to tie your answer back to their need for a savior. A great tool for that is this, this black, what we call gospel tract. And, and we have a kiosk with, with those right back there in the foyer. And you can grab one of these. Even if you don't even plan to hand it out, it is a great tool to understand the good news. I feel like it gives an amazing presentation, full presentation of the gospel. You get saved by believing or relying on the Lord Jesus Christ to work on the finished cross, on his finished work on the cross and by repenting of your sin. Now, I think this is such a good tool for you. Go grab these. We bought these for you. Even if you don't hand it out, go study it, go read it. Ask Pastor David or myself any questions you have about it. We also have a, a six-week gospel presentation. If you, if you like more of like a weekly conversation, if, if you have a friend or a coworker and they have a lot of questions, you're like, hey, do you want to do a Bible study together? I have found that a lot of hurting and confused people in the world don't mind saying, yeah, I think something like that can help me. Then we can equip you with, with what we call Christianity Explained. It's a six-week process where you take somebody through the gospel of Mark. And you teach them the gospel. It's what I took Art Rivera through and he understood it and called upon Christ to save him. And, and, and it's, it's what we've taken a ton of people through in, in the last year and a half or, or two years. I would love to equip you. That's not just for pastors to do. Pastor David will meet with you and show you that, that curriculum, show you how to use that just in your own living room, around a kitchen table, out to eat. You need to be equipped theologically. To understand and share the gospel. That doesn't mean you gotta, gotta know your Bible in and out, but, but hear me, friend, you, you, you do have to know the Bible. And I, I really believe, I really believe this, that, that a lot of Christians don't share their faith. And it's not just a personality thing. I really believe a lot of them don't share their faith because they don't know the Bible. Why? They don't read it, don't read the Bible. Got another tool for you. I got tools all over the place. Bible reading plan. We're not just going to preach to you and then say, go figure out something on your own. We're giving you tools. You got to get to know the scripture. Get around a, a, a seasoned Christian who knows the scripture and say, man, can, can, we, can we go and, 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 and visit about the Bible? Can, we, can, can, I, can I have permission to text you any questions I have about the Bible? Get with somebody that can mentor you in that, but get to know the gospel. Get to know the good news so that you can announce it with confidence. Let me give you one more help for personal evangelism. Expect God to work as you explain the good news. This man who had perhaps been a spiritual seeker for years heard the gospel for the first time. And we read it through the power of God, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He believed He said, I do believe that Jesus is the son of God. He was so convinced of the gospel message that that he was willing to take visible action to identify with Christ. 
That's why when they passed by a body of water, the Ethiopian man asked Philip, man, is, is there anything hindering me from getting baptized? And the word translated hinder or, or prevent, it has this meaning. He's saying, is there any barrier between me and full inclusion in the community of faith? Can I fully identify today as one of God's people? Remember, he was used to barriers. His ethnicity had been a barrier. His physical condition as a eunuch had been a barrier. But now through the work of Christ, every barrier had been broken down. And Philip said, if you believe that he's the son of God, of course, you are welcome into the community of Christ. So the Ethiopian believed the gospel. Then he was baptized and immediately became Philip's brother in Christ. I love this story, man. Doesn't it excite you when people get saved? The text ends by saying that Philip went on his way to preach the gospel in more cities, but the Ethiopian headed home rejoicing at the spiritual transformation that he'd experienced. Get this, church. In one single conversation, a man's life was changed forever. And we can expect that God will use our spirit-filled conversations with lost people in the same way. As we love people, as we're sensitive to the spirit, and as we understand how to explain the good news, God will give all of us opportunities and use all of us to lead people to the joy of salvation. Now, maybe it won't happen in one conversation. Maybe it won't happen in two conversations. Maybe it won't happen in a hundred conversations. But that doesn't mean that God's not working. The Bible says that his word never returns void. It's always doing something in the heart of a person who hears it. See, I think sometimes Christians put pressure on themselves to see somebody uh, they share the gospel with respond right away the first time. And they think that if they don't have this kind of experience that Philip had, that, that they failed. But what we have to understand is, is that not everybody gets saved the first time they hear the gospel. You probably didn't. We have to realize that, that though we expect God to work in our gospel conversations, we aren't the ones responsible for saving anybody or changing anybody. I like the goal that apologist Greg Kalkel has in every conversation he has with an atheist, agnostic, or unbeliever. He says this, It may surprise you to hear this, but I never set out to convert anyone. My aim is never to win someone to Christ. I have a more modest goal. All I want to do is put a stone in someone's shoe. I want to give him something worth thinking about. Something he can't ignore because it continues to poke at him in a good way. That is, by the way, why we do a six-week study with, with potentially new converts because we like to give the spirit time to really work. We we like to put stones in their shoe. God doesn't command you to save anybody. You couldn't if you tried. All God commands you to do is have conversations where you speak of Christ and the gospel and then leave the results to him. Kelby, I think of it like baseball. When you step up to the plate, you don't need to hit a home run every time. You didn't know what that felt like very many times anyway, but He's my brother-in-law. Chill out. When you step up to the plate, (laughs) that's good. I haven't done that in a while. You needed that. When you step up to the plate, you don't hit a home run every time. All you need to do sometimes is just get on base, right? And many of 
Many Christians I know won't even step up to the plate and swing because they're afraid they won't hit a home run. Well, guess what? You don't have to. Just get on base. When you go to work tomorrow, put a stone in someone's shoe. Cause someone to think about sin or or God as their creator or the love of Christ. And your conversation was a success. And then on Tuesday, throw another stone in their shoe. Well, how do you recommend I do that? Like cold turkey. I told you, it's not always cold turkey. The Spirit's already working. The first thing you do tomorrow morning is is you wake up, you get in the Word, and you pray and you surrender to the Holy Spirit of God that day. And you say, Holy Spirit of God, help me to see the opportunities when you give them. And you take one of these suckers right here, right here, or one of these little suckers right here. And and you just say, give me an opportunity to do something with these today. That's a very simple step. Very simple step. You listen to conversations happening at work, happening in your family, on social media, whatever the case might be. You do what my dad did. You notice the countenance of somebody isn't right. And you just take a second to care for him. And then at the end of the conversation, you just say something like this. I'm going to be praying for you this week. Prayer. You're a prayer? Praying for me? It's just a stone in their shoe. They're going to have to step on it all day long. On Tuesday, when they come back, say something like this. Hey, you doing better today? I prayed for you. Can I pray for you again? Can we just pray right now? That's a big old stone in somebody's shoe. God, help us do that this week. Help us do that. The responsibility is simple. Look for God-given, spirit-led opportunities to boldly have gospel conversations. Then expect God to work as you explain the good news. Love people, number one. Don't get so caught up with the crowd that you lose sight of the one. Go to where lost people are. Yield to the spirit, number two. He He is already making a way for you to have a conversation this week. Number three, Understand and explain the good news. Be prayed up, but be studied up. Equip yourself with resources like this to help you navigate gospel conversations. Number four, sit back and watch God honor your boldness and wisdom in sharing the gospel because God loves to save people. He loves it. And what makes you think he won't save the person you're burdened for? It might take a long time for them to see it. It might take a lot of stones in the shoe. It might take a lot of singles, Kelby. But you got to the big league hitting singles. It might take a lot of singles. But you just do what God allows you to do in the moment and wait for another opportunity. Can I encourage you today? Come and pray that God would give you what you need to do that this week. Would you stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye?